Good evening. It's good to see everybody. Last week when we were together, I uh, introduced to us the doctrine of the rapture, which is the sudden uh, return of Christ together, his church together to himself, uh, before the time of the tribulation where the church is suddenly caught up in the air to meet Christ and to be with him from that moment forward. And I immediately, uh, right up front, if you were here, I said, I know there's a bad rap on the rapture. I get that. Uh, a number of reasons. I gave a few. Uh, and sadly, it's a doctrine that's uh, a lot of times ridiculed. It's this doctrine that's not believed, a doctrine that many people think lacks biblical support. Most certainly, it's a doctrine that's not understood very well, nor thought of as much of an encouragement that God has designed that doctrine to be for his people. Um, but as I told you, the truth is concerning the doctrine of the rapture, and it's really a wonderful doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine, a wonderful doctrine, and it's based on biblical truth. And it is meant to bring us as God's people a tremendous amount of hope in trying and difficult times. And that's the reason I bring it to our attention. Uh, because I'm convinced that we as uh, the church are entirely too caught up in the affairs of the world. Uh, a world that's headed towards judgment. Uh, I, and rather, I think we need to have our focus redirected uh, towards Christ. Because Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. Now, I'm not bringing attention to the doctrine of the rapture to cause any kind of major uh, theological discussions or kinds of controversies or debates, but I'm bringing it pastorally because that's the way Paul brought it in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Again, he brings it pastorally. He wants to focus the Thessalonians' attention on Christ because we all need to set our need or our focus upon Christ because that's where our hope comes from. Our hope comes from Christ. Nothing in this world is going to give us any hope. Watching the evening news isn't going to give you any hope. Watching the uh, dead and deca decaying world around us isn't going to encourage your heart any. A world that I heard someone, and I said this in my small group, that aptly describes this world, that we are no longer living in just a post-Christian world, no longer just a post-truth uh, world, but we're now living in a world that is post-reality. That's where we're at. Because we're commanded to believe and accept the reality that a man who dresses up and thinks he is a woman, is a woman, when in reality, truthfully, biologically, on a chromosomal level, on a reality level, men are men and women are women. But if we don't accept that kind of irrational untruthfulness as normal then the, and the new reality, then we're going to become the problem. Right? We're going to be potentially charged with uh, some kind of hate crime and probably soon will be for simply saying the unthinkable statement that men are men and women are women. Right? I mean, in the discussion, that's reality. But we live in a post-reality world. I want to remind you what John says in 1 John 2 and 2. No lies of the truth. Right? No lies of the truth. Uh, the world that we're living in is a full-on Romans 1 world where we are experiencing literally the wrath of God's abandonment. It's a society that God has given over to itself that continues to reject him, who exchanges the truth for a lie, who refuses to honor him. In fact, perhaps you saw this. I saw this last week. It was interesting, I thought, an exchange in Congress between a man named Greg Stubbe, who is a representative from Florida, uh, who uh, is in opposition to the so-called Equality Act. I'm sure that you probably begin to read on that Equality Act. Uh, if... If Congress says it's this, it's probably the complete opposite, okay? And that's what this is. It's not the Equality Act, it's the Inequality Act. And this Equality Act wants to redefine who's a male and who's a female. So Greg Stubbe evidently is a Christian because he got up to represent God's opinion on the uh, 
issue and started reading out of the Bible and some uh, commentary out of the Bible. And he was opposed by Congressman Jerry Nadler of New York, and Nadler said this, and I quote, Whatever any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Well, that pretty much settles the point, right? That makes it clear where the ruling class is concerning the truth. Therefore, we live in a society that refuses to honor God, a society that is given over to the lust of the impurity of their own hearts that God has abandoned and giving this culture over to gritting passions. Men and women refusing to honor God or acknowledge him any longer, God gives them over to depraved minds, though they can't think properly. They have minds that are useless. Therefore, mankind's useless minds, his actions uh, causing him to be filled with all kinds of evil perversions, lust, uh, that he knows, it's really interesting, he knows it's going to bring God's condemnation, it's going to bring God's judgment, but in Romans 1 it says they do it anyway, and then they encourage others to do it alongside with them. Right? That's the insanity of sin. That's the world we're living in. That's the the society that we're a part of, whereas we watch it crumble, where uh, men won't humble themselves, they won't submit themselves to the authority of the Word of God. They won't honor God, they won't honor Christ. Everyone is becoming, it's like the end of the book of Judges, everyone's doing this right in their own mind, right? Everybody's becoming their little own, their own little G gods. Everyone's doing what's right in his or her own, own eyes, and that's what you see. Uh, you're seeing chaos ensuing everywhere. I mean, just imagine if there were no rules uh, on, on the freeway or the highways, and everybody just did whatever they want, go in any direction they want, stop, don't stop, no turn signal. I mean, it'd be chaos on the highways, right? Uh, and, and that's the world in which we're living in. Do whatever you want. Now, that's not the point of my sermon, but that's kind of the world that we're living in. And the reason I, a couple of weeks ago, brought up the doctrine of imminence is because I thought we could use some encouragement in this crazy world. That's why I brought it up, right? We need to understand the doctrine of imminence. The Christ is coming back. He'd come back at any moment. And last week, I brought up the doctrine of the rapture for the same reason, because I want to encourage our hearts. I want us to understand the hope that we have in Christ, not just for salvation after we die, after we're dead, but the hope we have in time. Uh, the hope that the great, uh, the next great event on the eschatological calendar, if you will, in eschatological history is the imminent return of Christ for his church. That's the doctrine of the rapture. It's not a crazy doctrine. It's not irrational. It is a doctrine like all doctrines that is meant to bring glory to God and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to edify and encourage God's people. And it's a doctrine that, again, has biblical support, but it's a doctrine that really needs some precision in trying to think through and understand it, which requires that you pay close attention to the words. And it's a doctrine also based on progressive revelation. I don't know if you, uh, I know at least one other guy in the room knows, but Alva McLean, he was a great teacher out of Grace Theological Seminary, and he says this on uh, progressive revelation, and especially related to the Messiah's coming. He says, A revelation in which the different elements are related, not mechanical, by, but dynamic and progressive. I thought that was helpful. Right, an understanding of the revelation of Christ, the progress of revelation, especially with his coming, he says that to understand and appreciate the progressive revelation, it's important to understand the doctrine, or an understanding of and an appreciation of uh, progressive revelation, it's important to understand the doctrine of rapture. And what he does is he uses an analogy based out of uh, uh, Mark 4, which is helpful, and just a picture of progressive revelation, where he compares it progressive revelation to a growing plant. Listen to Mark 4, and I'll just give you the highlights out of it. Mark 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil, and that seed sprouts up and it grows, and the soil produces crops, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain, 
uh, in the head, right? That's the way of uh, progressive revelation. And uh, uh, McLean says this, the doctrine of our Lord's coming into the world unfolds like a growing plant in which every stage of revelation contains the germ of that yet unrevealed, right? Same thing. You throw some seeds in the ground and you see a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. And again, I think that picture is helpful an understanding of progressive revelation, right? Because understanding progressive revelation takes us deeper and deeper into the complex issue of Christ's coming. It, it is, again, a doctrine that has been revealed from the Old Testament forward, and there are many examples in the Old Testament of the promise of Christ's coming. And in the New Testament and the Gospels, it unfolds in two major events, the coming of Christ. Uh, obviously, his first coming. And in the first coming of Christ includes a series of events, the virgin conception, birth, perfect life, ministry, atoning death, post-resurrection appearances, and then his ascension into heaven. The epistles unfold the second coming of Christ in two main uh, phases, the rapture of the church and the revelation. The revelation being specifically chapter 19 when he comes as a conquering king, right? So the Bible unfolds in the, gospel, the gospels, the first coming, the, the epistles, uh, two main phases. And, and, and between the two phases, there is a series of events and a seven-year time period, time of the tribulation. So in the epistles, the second coming of Christ, first the, is the rapture, rapture accompanied by the resurrection, translation, judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the second coming, or the second the coming of Christ, is the revelation where he comes back. Again, as the conquering king, he's accompanied uh, by the host of heaven. Uh, there's the battle of Armageddon, there's the millennial kingdom, then there's the great white throne judgment, etc., and so forth. So I, I say that all for help, to help us understand that the coming of Christ is a little more complex and a little more uh, intriguing the more deeper you look into it. It, it has a tremendous amount of complexity and beauty, uh, just like uh, when we take teles telescopes and look into the skies or when we take a microscope and look into a, a cell in the body, right? There's a whole lot more there than what meets the eye on first look. And God wants us to understand this doctrine of his coming because he wants us to have a hope. He wants us to be encouraged. Now, the rapture is a part of a wider study known as the parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, -A, if you were so concerned to write it down. Parousia. It just means the, long, the belonging, the coming, the presence. Come alongside or being alongside. So to be clear, the New Testament presents events around the Messiah's coming not merely as an act or the arrival of the Lord, but the total situation surrounding the Messiah's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, we'll look at it here in a bit, but you just listen for the moment. We now request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him. Right, The coming, the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his presence. Again, biblically, it's not one single point in history and time. One writer puts it like this. It's not a historical event. Rather, it is the point where history is mastered by God's eternal rule. I think that's a good picture, too. It's the point where all of God's plans come together in a series of events. Second Thessalonians 2.1, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by either the spirit or a message or a letter, as if it was from us or the effect that the day of the Lord has come. All right? One writer puts it like this. He says, the parousia, again, the coming, the presence, looks backward to Christ's first coming on earth, and then it looks ahead to the future, beginning with the rapture, followed by the seven-year tribulation, followed by the revelation, that is the second coming, followed by Armageddon, and then finally a thousand-year millennial or theocratic kingdom, 
in its wider term, the day of the Lord, which is best understood in the scripture as a judgment, which climaxes in the tribulation and the millennial, uh, the millennium just prior to the eternal state. The, the pre-tribulational view of the church is the next phase of the is the next phase of the coming before the tribulation period, as the rapture represents the translation of the removal of the church uh, to be with Christ forever. So again, he's saying, look, the coming is not just an event, right? It is a series of events. It's not just a point in history. So technically, the parousia, the coming of Christ, is all these events surrounded with the coming of Christ, all these different events unfolding one at a time. And when I say all this, I'm not trying to be over-technical. I just want you to understand there's a doctrine that needs a little bit of precision to be thought through. We need to listen to words, read words, get the understanding of the words, pay careful attention to the words. And understand there's a tremendous hope in Christ's return. The next event is the, the rapture of the church. Now, the doctrine I told you last time is not... Uh, some kind of new teaching. It's not uh, foreign in the history of the church, never before heard in there during the first 18th century of the church, as I said last time, that is a repeatedly for, uh, falsely reported. Many examples, I was even reading some more this week, many examples from early church uh, teachers, early church historians, fathers, who understood the teaching of the, this doctrine of the rapture. But I told you it's really not the teaching of the church, not the teaching of the church historians or fathers is the issue. Scripture is the issue. What does the scripture say? That's really the issue. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but there's at least six raptures in the church in the, in the scripture. Six. Four have taken place already, two still are to come. Now, I know that's difficult for some people to understand, especially those who uh, think there's no such thing as a rapture. I have some dear friends who believe that there's no such thing as a rapture, but my dear friends, there's six of them. It's what the Bible teaches. The one I'm most concerned about is the rapture the future event foretold in the Bible, namely the coming of Christ to take his bride, the church, to be with him forever. I told you the rapture comes from the Latin word. You're asking, when am I going to, what, what, what are these other ones you're going to tell us about? I will, but I'm just making you wait a bit. The word rapture, rapturo, harpizo is the Greek word, means to be caught up, taken away, snatched away. First Thessalonians 4.17, we'll look at it in a few moments. When we hear alive and remain, we shall be caught up, harpazo, seized, Snatched away together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be with the Lord always. Some theologians don't like the word rapture, maybe because it's taking too much heat, I don't know. They like to call it the translation. It's a Latin word that means transporting or transferring, because that's what Christ is going to do. He's going to transport the church from one location to another location. So again, just in case you were wondering, for those who hold the idea there's no rapture, I said there's six of them. The first four taught in the Bible have already taken place. Stop and think about it. If you thought about it, you go, oh yeah, I know that. I just didn't think it that way. How about Enoch and Elijah? They were taken up from the earth to heaven. Didn't experience death. How about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? He ascended into heaven right after his death and resurrection. Paul, I read this one to you out of 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 2 to 4, when uh, uh, he talks about a man raptured, taken up to the third heaven, more than likely him. He uses that same word caught up in that second uh, Corinthians passage that's used in uh, Revelation 12 for the Lord's ascension and First Thessalonians of the church's rapture. If you wanted to be more technical, I guess you could say there's seven, not six. You could throw Philip in. Remember I told you about Philip last week in Acts uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 39, when the Holy Spirit came upon him and he was at Gaza and then he was caught up or snatched away from uh, Gaza, brought to Caesarea about 30 miles away in an instant. The two other future raptures that are going to occur, 
is when the two witnesses in the future tribulation ascend to heaven after God has uh, resurrected them from the dead for three and a half days. So if you steadfastly, vehemently hold to the Bible doesn't teach rapture, that concept, you probably ought to think through that again. Now to understand the doctrine of the rapture that we're talking about, you have to understand again the, the biblical teaching that there's a difference between the church and Israel. I think that's vital. I, I went into it a little bit of detail last time out of Romans 11. Paul says very clearly that God's not finished with the nation of Israel. He has a future, Romans 11, 1. I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I'm not going to go over that all again. But I will say this one point before I move on. I think one of the foundational errors that people have who confuse these two distinct entities uh, concerns God's intended purpose for Israel. Israel was created by God to be a vehicle that would bring blessing uh, to all the families of the earth. That's what it says in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. It was never God's intent to make everyone who believes Israel. I think that's an issue. Through Israel, the ultimate Israelite, right? The ultimate Israelite, Lord Jesus Christ comes, and he's going to be the means for worldwide blessing. But Israel is not an end to itself. The purpose of Israel was to glorify God by bringing blessing to the people, to all the nations, ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, when the nation of Israel failed in its purpose to declare the love of God through the world, the message of reconciliation, uh, through his son, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they also rejected, God sent the na- set, set the nation of Israel aside temporarily. He brought into existence an entirely new entity called the church, made up again of both Jews and Gentiles, that began at Pentecost, an entirely new entity. Israel had long existence, but the church began at Pentecost. So when they all spoke with tongues, uh, filled with the Spirit of God, they spoke in known languages, and it says in Acts 2, they weren't just speaking gibberish, they were speaking the mighty things of God, the mighty deeds of God. And all those people around them heard them in their own language, and they were giving glory to God. How are we hearing these glorious things of God? Because right? God was communicating to the nations. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. That's the beginning of the church. All believers in Christ, all believing Jews, all believing Gentiles, baptized into one body. Something new, something that never happened before. Again, biblically, there's a clear distinction between the church and Israel. Here's a verse you probably want to memorize. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on the uh, rearview mirror of your car. 1 Corinthians 10.32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Right? They're all there in that, all three entities, all three groups distinctly listed in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. Always separate. Right? There are believing Jews, believing Gentiles in the church, but that's not the same as Israel. So the church begins at the Pentecost and it ends historically at the rapture. God again initially began with the nation of Israel. They rejected him. He rejected them. He moved to the Gentiles. He called out a group of people from the nations, Gentiles and Jews, who believe upon the person of Christ. When he's finished with them and the fullness of Gentiles comes, when it comes to an end, God's going to go right back and deal with the nation of Israel again. That's the, how it lays out in the Bible. Now, again, the Jews never conceived this kind of idea. They never had this kind of a, a idea of a, of a relationship with them and Gentiles together. Uh, for example, First Corinthians or, or Colossians one twenty six, uh, Paul says, "This is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but is now made manifest to His saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of His glory, the mystery among the Gentiles." which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
The Jews have no understanding of Jew and Gentile together. The Jews have no concept of the understanding uh, from the Old Testament of Messiah being with them, but Messiah indwelling a person. The mystery amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, right? That's a unique characteristic of the church, the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, another distinction of, of the church. So again, the church is made up of Jews, Gentiles. It's a mystery. Uh, Paul revealed it. It wasn't seen in the Old Testament. Jews and Gentiles, one body, one new man in Christ, indwelling in the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to look at it, but you can go and back and you can look at Ephesians 2, uh, 11 through 16, which speaks to the same issue. And then Ephesians 1 through uh, 3, verses uh, 1 through 9, also speak of that same issue. The mystery of Christ, which in other generations is not made known to the sons of men, now has been revealed that his holy apostles and his prophets and the Spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises of Christ through the gospel. I mean, the, the church is a distinct work, a distinct work in a specific age. The church begins at Pentecost. The church ends at the rapture before the time of the tribulation because the time of the tribulation is known as Jacob's trouble. It's Israel's trouble. And again, historically in the future, uh, the church won't be present in this time of the tribulation. In the time where God pours out his wrath upon the disobedient and the rebellious, he pours it out on the disobedient and the rebellious. He does not pour it out on his church. God poured out his wrath upon Christ so that he would not have to pour out his wrath upon the church. Christ stood in our place as the substitute. He took our place. The Father loves the church. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. We looked at these verses last time, so I'll just mention them. 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, uh, 8, God demonstrated his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God does not pour out his wrath upon the church. He pours out his wrath upon the disobedient, the rebellious, both Jews and Gentiles, those from the nation. Right from the nations, and those specifically from the nation of Israel, the Jews from the nation of Israel who are disobedient and rebellious at the time of the tribulation. Now, the time of the tribulation, if you read anything in the book of the Revelation, obviously you know it's a terrible time on the earth, a difficult time on the earth, a difficult time of judgment, the, the worst time of judgment the world has ever seen. It's a time to make the end of wickedness in the wicked ones. But as I said last time, a great purpose of the time of the tribulation really is evangelistic. It is primarily for the conversion of Israel. So they can look on him whom they have pierced. So they can see that Jesus really is their Messiah. I think there will be many Gentiles that are also saved during the time of the tribulation. But again, it's a time of trouble like the world has never seen. And, and as Ken and I were talking about it last week, he reminded me that the, the, the tribulation really needs to be looked at as a time of uh, most gracious time, perhaps, in all of human history. Because think about every judgment that's poured out in the time of the tribulation. There's a judgment, then there's a pause. There's a judgment, then there's a pause. God doesn't need a pause. If God just wanted to wipe out all the un wicked, all the rebellious, he could just do it in one swell, fell swoop judgment, right? He could bring a judgment and be over. But there's a judgment and a pause and a judgment and a pause. And ask yourself, why is there a pause? What's the purpose of the pause? The purpose of the pause is to bring repentance. All right, the purpose of the pause is to bring repentance, to give people, to give men a time to repent because God's gracious. God always desires for men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and again, many in this time of difficulty are going to be saved because of God's kindness in this terrible time in the future. 
There's a, a time where many people will come to know the truth. A lot of people won't, but many will. But the church is not destined for wrath. The church is destined to be with Christ. Now, th- this could very easily turn into a sermon series, and I don't want that, right? I, I don't want to do that. My primary purpose of introducing it was not to start into a discussion or a series on eschatology. My purpose was just to try and encourage us. I just looked out there and I said, you know what? Time's tough. Everybody's discouraged. We need something to encourage us. What could encourage our hearts? Well, the imminent return of Christ. We don't talk about that a lot. We, we kind of talk about it. We're around it. But we don't really think about it. We ought to think about it. What does it mean? So I want to do it to encourage our hearts, to bring us hope. If you were to ask the average churchgoer what brings them hope, you get a variety of answers. Probably you hear someone say, well, my salvation. I'm saved and I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That's good. Someone else might say, well, my hope is death. I'm tired of this world and pain and suffering. I want to die. I want to be released from this world, and that way I'll be with the Lord. I get it. I understand the sentiment, but death is an enemy. I don't see a lot of hope in the enemy. Although Christ brings us hope in death, right? Because he defeated the last uh, enemy, which is death. Perhaps you ask somebody that question, you hear them say, well, my hope is heaven. I'm looking forward to heaven. You know what? I am too. Man, I am looking forward to heaven. Amen? Get a new body. I'm all for that. But I don't see anywhere in the scripture where the scripture presents salvation, eternal life, death, or heaven as our hope. We don't hope for salvation because we already have it in Christ, right? And we're just awaiting the fullness of what that salvation looks like, what it means. And death is nothing more than the wages of sin, so that's certainly not anything in that would find a position of hope in that. And everybody's not going to die, even Christians, right? We shall not all sleep, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. So not every Christian is going to die, so death certainly can't be our hope. Heaven itself is not really our hope biblically, but the object of our hope is found in heaven, so we're getting closer. Our hope's found in a person. Hope's found in a person, one who's alive, one who causes us to rejoice, one who bids us to come to him by grace. The very first verse we started out a couple weeks ago uh, where our hope uh, might be properly placed was uh, Titus 2 and 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, our hope. Jesus Christ, our hope. 1 Timothy 1 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our what? Hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. He's our hope. The promise of the scripture is that he's coming back and he's going to take us with him to be forever. That's a tremendous, tremendous uh, encouragement. Now, last time I said there's three primary passages in the New Testament that speak to the issue of the rapture of the church. The first one was uh, John 14, and we looked at that last week. We started off in John 13, where Christ tells his disciples that he's going away and he's going to leave, and where he's going, they can't follow he was speaking about his death. They didn't understand that, but they're tremendously grieved at, at that uh, discussion, that revelation, right? The fact that he's going to leave. And John 14 is the antidote for fear. Uh, he doesn't tell them to uh, get ready for the seven years of terror and wrath. He tells them to be encouraged. He says in John 14:1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? Don't let your heart be troubled. I got it together. I got it. Everything's going to be okay. Believe in God. Believe in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
you want to look at that, that's fine. I hear some, some people flipping. You should do that. John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be with me also, or there you may be also. Now the Father's house is where? I'm looking for some directions here. Uh, up, way up, <laughs> right? Heaven. Christ says, I'm going to my Father's house in heaven. I will go from earth to heaven, and I will come again from heaven to earth and receive you to myself. I'm going to take you with me. From the earth back to the heaven and then you'll join me forever, right? You'll be with me in heaven. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, again, where is he? Heaven. There you may be also. That's why he says, don't let your heart be troubled. They were discouraged. He was going, he was leaving. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to personally come and get you. He's going to come personally for his own. He's going to receive them to himself, take them back with him to his father's house, where he will, they will, we will be in his presence forever. Again, it's a picture of a marriage, uh, a marriage ceremony. Now, this is a new revelation to the Jewish ear because the Jews, again, don't have a concept of a rapture. They thought when Messiah comes back, he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. So what Christ does is he holds before his disciples, who become the apostles, who are the foundation of the church, he sets before his disciples an entirely different hope for them and for us, all who love Christ, right? Then the promise for the nation of Israel. The hope of the nation of Israel is an earthly kingdom. The hope of the church is Christ, Christ himself. And the promise of Christ to his church is that he's going to come personally for them and take them out of this world to his father's house. That's pretty encouraging. In a world that doesn't have a whole lot of things to be encouraged about, that's pretty encouraging. That's glorious truth. Truth that should be an encouragement to our heart. And you'll see in this text, there's no, there's no uh, signs, there's no intervening events. Therefore, the promise could happen at any moment. Because the church is not going through the time of tribulation. If we were, if the church was going through the time of the tribulation, he would not say, do not let your heart be troubled. Rather, he would say, boy, you better buckle up the bootstraps cinch up your belt a little bit. You better get ready in fear and terror for what's coming, right? You better let your heart be troubled. But he doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say that? Because Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I said last time here in uh, John 14, that's the promise. The promise of the rapture. And I admit it, uh, admit, uh, admit it, it's in seed form, but I've already used my analogy that the seed goes in the ground and a little sprout comes up and it gets bigger and bigger, so I'm good with that one, right? It's very small, I get it, but nevertheless, it's there. Now, let's, that's the promise in John 14. Let's look at the plan. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, the church at Thessalonica was a young church. Apparently, Paul had only been there for a few Sabbaths, maybe three. But he preached to them, and he preached clearly and simply enough the gospel that evidently had given them enough understanding of end times they understood about the rapture. In fact, in this book, the rapture is mentioned in one way or another in every chapter in the book. They were looking for the return of Christ. And they were looking for the return of Christ at any time. 
Uh, first, thir- first, uh, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 1. I know I told you to turn to 10, but that, chapter 1 verse 10 says that they were waiting for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who again delivers us from the wrath to come. You see it in chapter 1, you see it in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, all speaking about the coming of the Lord. They were waiting, waiting patiently, uh, expectantly, uh, trusting for the Son. L- look what it says they were waiting in verse uh, 10, chapter 1. They were waiting for his son. Gosh, where's this guy at? Where's he coming? From heaven. They were waiting for him from heaven. The Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus to come from heaven to deliver them, to rescue them from the wrath to come. That's what it says in the text, right? So each and every day, they're eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Each and every day, anticipating Christ's return. And again, that's what we need to be doing not focusing on the world around us. Each and every day we should be looking up. We should be looking for the person of Christ. He is our hope. He's our hope. So the church understood this. They looked forward to the return of Christ. They were longing for the return of Christ. They loved each other. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. It says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So they were a tremendously loving church eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. But what happened? In the context of their uh, fellowship, some people started to die off and Jesus hadn't come. So they saw that the return of Christ was imminent, that he could come at any moment. Therefore, they started to become concerned by what was happening to those who were dying. Where were, were they going to miss Jesus when he came? What's going to happen to those who believe in who are believers who died before the return of Christ. They were fearful. And not only that, but according to chapter 5, the first three verses, they also knew about the day of the Lord. They knew that there was a coming day of judgment upon the ungodly. And some of them seemed to be afraid that they had missed the rapture because perhaps the persecution uh, that they were uh, suffering, according to uh, chapter 3, was evidently so severe, some of them started to believe that they were actually in the day of the Lord which obviously they're not expected to experience. Uh, Again, turn back to chapter uh, 2, verse 1. That's where Paul tells them very directly the day of the Lord hadn't come yet. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come or the day of the Lord is at hand. Right? The persecution you're suffering is not the day of the Lord. He says, let one, verse 3, let no one deceive, let one in any way deceive you for it will, the day of the Lord, he will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That person that's coming is the final Antichrist, the Antichrist. This situation is the abomination of desolation. Daniel talks about it. It's still future. It's in the time of the the future, the time of the tribulation. So Paul's saying, look, the day of the Lord had not come. And listen, the day of the Lord will not ever come for the believer. The day of the Lord will not come for the believer. We're not a part of that. That day of unprecedented pouring out of God's wrath upon the 
of the wicked world is still future. The persecution that the Thessalonians were going through is just life in a fallen world that believers can expect in a sinful world. Now look, if the Thessalonians feared they were in the day of the Lord and that they missed the rapture, that would imply that they understood the rapture preceded the tribulation, which makes them pre-tribulationalists, right? If the Thessalonians believed that the rapture came at the end of the tribulation, post-tribulation, that would make them post-tribulationalists. Then the persecution they were going through should not cause them to fear. Instead, if they were post-tribulationalists, the persecution that they're going through should cause them to have great joy because the day of the Lord had come and the second coming was drawing near, right? Does that make sense? But they, they weren't. They, 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 they thought the rapture was coming before the tribulation. And their great concern was for their loved ones. They were dying off. What's happening to them? So again, Paul's going to give an instruction, and it's not really a theological lesson. It's not doctrinal. It's pastoral. And he's giving them a detailed description of the rapture. Again, turn back over to chapter 4. And he's doing it for the express purpose to comfort them when they're grieving, not just to fill their heads with information. He's trying to quiet and encourage their hearts. He's trying to bring them hope. Chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be <clears throat> uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve or sorrow or be sad or be distressed as those who have no hope. Right? We don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Asleep here is just a euphemism for those who have died. Now, I don't know if I should say anything, but I thought I probably ought to. Uh, those who are asleep here does not teach, the Bible is not teaching that, as some people wrongly teach, the concept of soul sleep. That when you die, your soul just goes to never, never land, you lose consciousness, you sleep until the rapture. It's not what he's teaching, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? <clears throat> when a believer dies, he goes, <clears throat> excuse me, directly into the presence of Christ, uh, the repentant thief on the cross. Christ says, truly today you will be with me in paradise, right? You'll be with me uh, in, in heaven. So in the New Testament, sleep applies to the body, never to the soul. Soul sleep, again, is a false teaching uh, that the, the dead are in some kind of state of unconscious existence and afterlife. That's foreign to Scripture. We do not want you, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. The rest who have no hope is the unbelievers. Right? There's a lot of terrifying hopelessness. Right? There's a terrifying hopeless finale for unbelievers when a dead one dead one lies because there's no hope of reunion. There's no hope of resurrection unto life for the unbeliever. So the Thessalonian believers are distressed over the fact that some of their fellow brothers, their fellow saints had died. Therefore, if these believers believed and taught that the church must go through all or any part of the <clears throat> day of the Lord, the time of a tribulation with its intense outpouring of God's wrath, as one writer says, <clears throat> excuse me, the logical reaction for them would have been to rejoice that these loved ones had escaped that great peril, uh, that great suffering, and they escaped it through death. If they believed and taught <clears throat> that the church must go through any part of that day of the Lord, right? <clears throat> Which obviously they didn't, and the teacher's not teaching that, well, at least they've escaped, right? There's no indication 
found here that there's any reason uh, to rejoice over the death of the saints, the dead saint one, the dead saints, right? Uh, so again, that at least implies that they've not been taught that the church is going through any part, part or any part of the time of the tribulation. So again, Paul's trying to relieve their distress. He's trying to teach them pastorally over the death of their fellow loved ones and the truth of the future rapture of the church. So again, if these distressed saints had been taught that the church must go through any or all part of the tribulation, then why didn't Paul uh, encourage them with additional information uh, that through their death of their loved ones, at least they escaped? Well, you know, it's good for them, bad for us. We've got to go through a whole lot of trouble and try, trying times. He doesn't say that. Because the answer to the question is the church is not going through the time of tribulation. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep with Jesus. Jesus died, rose again. We got that. His body went to the grave. His soul never died. His soul rose from the grave, right? He rose from the grave again, right? Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. John 14, 19. After a little while, the world, uh, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. I live because, because I live, you shall also live. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and life. Everyone who believes in me shall live. Even if he dies, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. I told you last time, the rapture is tied to the resurrection. Right? It's tied to the resurrection. Verse 14 again. For if, or really it's since, for since we believe that Jesus died, and Paul doesn't use a metaphor for sleep, he just died, experienced the full effect of death in all of its dimensions, even if, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, and that phrase links the believer's resurrection with the resurrection of Christ, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Right? So when Jesus comes back, God will bring with him. When he comes back, Jesus comes back at the rapture, he's going to bring some people with him. Who's he going to bring? He's going to bring the Spirit of believers who have already died but not received a glorified body because Christ defeated death, we defeated death because Christ rose from the dead we're going to rise from the dead because Christ had a real glorified body we're going to have a real glorified body so when Christ returns for his own at the rapture he's going to bring with him all of the spirits of the dead saints of the church age so they, they can be resurrected with their uh, united uh, or resurrected and united with their glorified bodies, right? Their spirits will come and they'll be resurrected or united with their uh, glorified bodies. Verse 15, Paul says, Look, I say this, or we say this to you by way of the Lord. Again, it's not my own idea, it's what the Lord says. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall precede or go ahead of, we shall precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying, Look, that the dear loved ones who've died are not going to miss the rapture. Listen, they're actually going to be first. They're actually going to be first. We who are alive and remain till the coming of the Lord, right? The Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture, and again, those who believe that Christ could come at any moment, those who are looking forward to his appearing, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not proceed or go ahead of those who fall asleep. The word not, not proceed, it's a double negative in the Greek. It means by no means, no way, can't happen, impossible. So he's saying, look, those who are alive aren't getting a head start in the translation. The, the, the living don't have an advantage over the dead here. The reality is, though, dead loved ones that you're worried about, it's better off to be dead at this time when Christ comes back because your spirit's going to go be with Christ and you're going to be the first ones to be raptured. You're going to come back with him and he returns. You're going to get your new resurrected body first. You're going to come out of the ground first. That's what he's saying. 
Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Boy, that sounds pretty familiar to what we just read back in John 14, right? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place. Where do you go? Heaven. If I go to prepare a place, I will come again. Where is he coming from? From heaven. To receive you to myself. Right? To take you with me. Where I am that you may be also. So the Lord himself, again, verse 16, will descend from heaven. Literal, physical. Just like he left. Literal, physical. Literal, physical. Return of Jesus Christ for his church. He will descend from heaven with a shout. It means that the word means order, command. He's going to return from heaven for his church, and he's going to command with authority, with urgency. He will descend from heaven with a shout. What's he going to say? I don't know. It doesn't say there. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe he shouts, arise. Maybe he shouts, come up here. Get up. Get out. Come up. I don't know. But it's interesting in John 5 and 28, remember Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. All in the tombs are going to hear his voice. You know what? It's going to be a loud shout. It literally is going to be a shout that awakens the dead. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Come up. Follow me, right? And I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. Now, when the Lord again descends from heaven, not everybody's going to be raised. The Bible teaches the saints, Old Testament saints, don't get their resurrected bodies till the end of the tribulation. The wicked are going to have a resurrection at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, and when the unjust are raised, right? The wicked are going to have a, uh, a resurrection and a judgment. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Again, it's speaking of the rapture, the snatching away of the church. Again, there's no intervening event. Church is not waiting for an event on the calendar there or an event in history. The church is waiting for a person. We're not waiting for a signal. We're not waiting for a sign. We're waiting for a voice. The voice of Christ, the literal return of Christ to the rapture of the church to receive us unto himself. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Is that Michael? I don't know. The text doesn't say, but more than likely, five times he's indicated in Scripture as the archangel. He's the leader of the angels. He's the war angel. He's the commander-in-chief of the angel. He's the general, if you will, God's general, who's been fighting Satan for a long time. Satan and demons. And with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, some commentators suggest the trumpet sounds as Michael the archangel sounds victory. Because trumpets were always used in the scripture to signify some kind of big event. Or sometimes to summon people or to summon people to battle, sometimes summon the people to worship. But the trumpet sound here of God in the arrival of the archangel, here it seems to be a trumpet that summons Christ's people to himself. Summons Christ's people uh, to himself. Perhaps it's part of celebrating the victory that Christ has won because seven years after this event, Michael and his angels are, are going to completely wipe out Satan and his demons. It says the trumpet of God, and the, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the dead are going to rise uh, in Christ. They're no way in fear to those who are living at the rapture. Again, they're going to get their glorified bodies first. So for the concern of what happens to these brothers that, uh, that, are, that have passed away, it's going to be okay for them. It's going to be okay for them. Verse 17 then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We who are alive, who's that? The church, believers in Christ. When we who are alive and remain and shall be caught up, harpazo, there's our word, rapturo, rapture, seize, carry away, snatched away. 
We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Who's them? Well, it's the dead, the dead in Christ. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always, we shall always be with the Lord. Right? Again, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will receive you. I'll take you. Join you with myself. Right? Where am I going? Going to heaven. Uh, again, out of John 14. Right? Same truth. Then we who are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the next scheduled meeting that we're going to have is going to be with the Lord. Right? The next scheduled meeting that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ is we're going to be caught up with him meet him above the clouds into the heavenlies so that he can take us back to where he is. Where is he? He's in heaven. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the plan. Right? The plan out of John 14, the promise out of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, the promise for the church that we're always going to be the be with the Lord. That's the glorious hope of the church, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore what? Comfort one another with these words. Right? Comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another. Right? There's nothing in these words that speak to us about fear, just joy. There's nothing that says or suggests that we need to be worried about the present time or the future time, just that we should be listening for the voice of Christ and we should be encouraged. Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with the truth of the rapture, the hope that Christians alone have in this world, because there's no other religious faith that has like has anything like this to offer for believers in their faith. There's nothing like this that God is going to come back and take us to be with him. Everybody's hoping. Everybody's hoping they've done more good things than bad things. We have an assured confidence, not based on our own effort, but based on the righteousness of Christ. The very next verse, chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren. Uh, the phrase re- refers uh, in general sense to the end times, uh, but the congregation want to know the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, and when is it going to come? He says, look, you have no need of, anybody, of, of uh, anything to be written to you. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Basically, what Paul is saying, the Thessalonians didn't need to know when the day of the Lord was going to come because they already knew all that God intended them to know. To know when the specific date the day of the Lord would come would foster either uh, indifference if it was going to come in a long period of time, or it would foster panic if it were going to come soon. So he said, you don't really know, you don't need to know, you don't need to know when, you just need to be ready. You just need to be spiritually prepared and ready for when the return of Christ does come, because all date setting and clock watching does is just cause problems. So God's not chosen to reveal the specific time of these end time events, so that all of us as believers live in constant anticipation of Christ's soon return. Verse 2, for yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. Uh, when, the, when does the thief come? Oh, next Tuesday at 12. No, he comes when you're not expecting him to come. That's when the thief of the night, right? The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will call up, come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. They and them are unbelievers. But you, brethren, you, the church at Thessalonica, you are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of the light, sons of the day. You are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Excuse me, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. 
Those who get drunk, get drunk at night, but since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word destined expresses God's plan, God's sovereign plan for the believer that he's calling to salvation. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus told believers, he promised believers that they would inherit the kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 1, God shows us in him before the foundation of the world that we'd be holy and blameless before him. 2 uh, Timothy 1 and 9, God has saved us and called us for the holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace for which God granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God is not dressed in us for wrath as believers. He's destined us for blessing. Blessing to be saved, to know him, to be in union with him, to be in union with the Son, to be dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Nothing but our good. God has not destined us for wrath. I mean, wrath here doesn't mean just a momentarily outburst of anger, but it's God's settled mind against all those that are rebellious against him. It's a general reference to the final judgment when God's going to pour out his wrath upon the wicked. Now, God's wrath here in the context has to include the day of the Lord because that's one of the things that the Thessalonians were primarily concerned about. But Paul assured them that they would neither face temporal wrath nor the day of the Lord, right? Temporal wrath in the day of the Lord, nor nor eternal wrath in a place called hell. Uh, Again, he's saying the church is not going through the time of the tribulation. God has not destined us, the church, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him, that we may live together with him, encourage one another, build up one another just as you are doing, right? The doctrine of the rapture is encouraging, encouraging doctrine to give us hope. And there's one more passage, we're going to look at it real quickly, and I mean real quickly. It's in 1 Thessalonians, you know that, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 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 15. 1 Thessalonians 15. It's the resurrection chapter. I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians, what did I say, Thessalonians? You know what I meant, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the, the resurrection chapter, right? Again, because of Christ's resurrection, guarantees our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, mysterion. We shall not <coughs> all sleep, <coughs> but we shall all be changed, right? Uh, again, mystery. It's something hidden. It's a word that's used 27 times in the New Testament. It always refers to something that was hidden in the New Testament, uh, that it was now new revelation. Again, revelation is progressive, right? God's revealing new truth something Old Testament people didn't know. Now, Israel knew about the Messiah and his coming. They, they knew about him coming for, to set up a kingdom. They got that. They even knew about resurrection. They got resurrection down, right? It wasn't a mystery to them. Job, uh, 25, 20, or Job 19, 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet for my flesh I shall see God. Uh, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will raise. Uh, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. The earth will give birth to departed saints. Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and contempt. They understood resurrection. The mystery they didn't understand because it had not been revealed to them, the mystery that had been hidden until this time was the rapture. The fact that some believers are going to be taken off the earth, snatched away into heaven without dying. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die but we shall be changed, right? We shall be changed. We shall all be changed. 
we shall all be changed. You know, somebody told me, I don't know if it's true, but that's the motto down in our nursery. I don't know. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, right? We're not all going to die as believers. But listen, we shall all be changed. All be changed. All. All means all. Even those who have already died with Christ are going to be changed. They're going to be transformed. They're going to get new glorified bodies. Powerful bodies, incorruptible bodies, eternal bodies, bodies fit for eternity. What kind of bodies? Right? Like Christ, 1 John 3 and 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him just as he is. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Right? Uh, again, remember the first, the, the Thessalonians, uh, one, one Thessalonians, the dead go first, right? In, in the book of Thessalonians, the dead go first. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye. That's pretty fast. I don't know how fast it is, but it's pretty fast, right? Real fast. In a moment, the twinkling of eye, the last trumpet, trumpet will sound. The last trumpet that believers hear is completely different from any of the end-time trumpets that go on during the time of the tribulation. You go, how do you know that? because the church is not going through the time of the tribulation. Christ has come to save us from the wrath to come. So this last trumpet that believers hear before his uh, uh, immediate return, his instantan- or before the church is instantaneously uh, raptured and translated out of the world, this is the last trumpet they hear, right? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ or the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Verse 53, For this imperishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. We're not going with these old dead crusty bodies into heaven. We're getting better bodies, new bodies, bodies like Christ. Paul said that to the Philippians. Philippians 3.12, our citizenship is in heaven. From which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself, right? We're not taking these old worn-out things up to heaven. We're getting new ones. So believers in Christ wait for him. They look for him. They're looking for him to return because that's the promise. He's promised to come and get us, to take us out of this world, to take us back with him. And when he appears, we're going to be just like him. That's encouraging hope. It's encouraging words. No wrath for the church. Christ promised to deliver the church from the wrath to come. Now, again, the rapture of the church was something that wasn't known to the Old Testament saint. It's a mystery hidden, Paul said, has now been revealed, right? Not so with the second coming. You look in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of uh, promises of the return of Christ in the second coming where the Messiah would come, be a conquering king, and set up a millennial kingdom. They understood that. Therefore, again, the rapture and the second coming of the church, two different things. They occur at two separate times. The the rapture of church is imminent. It's going to come at any moment. Right? The second coming has to wait at least seven years after that period of time. Right? Second coming is preceded by, ta- by signs, birth pains. Right? But as believers, we're not looking for signs. We're looking for Christ. We're looking for the blessed Lord Jesus Christ to come for us from heaven, rapture the church to take us to be with him forever. Right? And when that happens, when the church is raptured, very soon, if not immediately, very soon, that's what sets off the series of events, the seven-year tribulation period followed by the second advent of Christ when he returns 
conquering king puts down all of his opposition, sets up his millennial kingdom. Which means what? This old earth has a lot more time in it than people who are worshiping the planet believe. It's got at least a thousand seven years. At least. Until Christ returns. The rapture is the blessing for the church. The second coming is the judgment for the world. Judgment for the wicked. The primary, time, primary purpose of the time of the tribulation centers on Christ. is judgment for the unbelieving world, but it's preparation for the redemption of Israel. So they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. And God will save Israel. Not every single solitary person, but a lot of them. People who repent. People who see who Jesus Christ really is. Right now, the hope of the church is the return of Christ. So we have a hope of Christ coming at any moment. It goes on and says that in the book of Titus, that it should encourage us to holy lives. To live lives above reproach, knowing that Christ could come at any moment. As Paul said, encourage each other. Right? Encourage each other with these words, because that's why God put them in the text of Scripture for us to know and understand. Father, we are encouraged by truth. So thankful that uh, you have such a tremendous love for us and you've planned it and you've executed or going to execute that plan for us and the coming of uh, our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We honor you. We love you. Thank you again for the blessing of the fellowship. Thank you for allowing us to meet in person. May we have a blessed week. May we think often of you. May we have our focus up where our hope comes from. We pray in Christ's name.